The Last Word with Matt Cooper. I have Nicola Talent with us who has just published her new book Cocaine Cowboys The Deadly Rise of Ireland's Drug Lords but I think it's fair to say Nicola you go way further than just those who are the pushers you go into the story of those who were affected by cocaine and those who were sort of not just even the middlemen but those who are at ground level who are pushing the drug which seems to be everywhere in Ireland. Or is that an urban myth? No, I don't think it's an urban myth at all. It is available everywhere. So it's sort of tried to weave it all together, including the big problem, which is demand. Yeah. You know, they're not selling to an unwilling public, are they? Um, huge Sorry, amount of we money. We recently did a big piece for the Irish Farmers Journal had yeah. done a survey of, of farmers having difficulties and getting addicted and losing money that had to be paid over to drug dealers from farm income. It seems to have seeped way beyond the sort of the traditional belief of the dinner party circuit or the club circuit in our big cities. This is getting into every nook and cranny of Ireland it seems. And the availability of it of course is something that's kind of helping that demand grow as well because there was a time when somebody was down in a rural pub in some backwater and if they wanted cocaine they'd probably have to get in the car and drive to Dublin for it whereas now it's available in the literally in the bathrooms and funny the addiction counsellors are talking about the types of people who are coming forward obviously very few people come forward for it you know with addiction problems with cocaine but some do and some of them are in their 60s and they've never used drugs before I just found that extraordinary and it's because they're, they're in their local pub and of course it's just available and it can be used openly. There's no sense of, you know, that you have to hide it or anything like that. So it has really seeped into society. How did the distribution though get to every nook and cranny in rural Ireland? Because there's so many people involved in the distribution now. That has grown obviously as the demand grew and as the country got wealthier. There was a little kind of a sort of, um, it sort of stopped growing a little while over the big C word COVID and then it just bounced back again when everything was open. But, but even when you go back further, it was the mm. Celtic Tiger drug of choice for very many people. And then the economy went crashed 15 years ago or so. Did that stop? the actual use of cocaine or was it that actually it still continued on the basis that it was a cheap alternative to alcohol? No, it didn't stop it, but it did certainly take a bit of a dip then and that was because certain areas of the society would have had jobs didn't anymore so they didn't have that disposable income. Like what really drives it is the weekend crowd who are working, who are going out at the weekend to have a bit of fun and they're buying that cocaine and that's doubling the profits. So whatever's for sale during the week is the base, the bread and butter really for the dealers. But it's the weekend boom that has made them so rich. Yeah, and I say it's an alternative to cocaine, which is probably a mistake because for many people, it's, alcohol. Lit, it's the it's the actual, it drives on after a few pints, then it's onto the cocaine to allow people to continue drinking. And also it seems to be, there's a high usage in men aged 25 to 35 who are probably lacking a bit of confidence and that's what it gives them or they feel it gives them. And then you know, it sort of does seep in a little bit of something that they feel they need then um, and they've the money and they're they're buying it. But you also mentioned about older people using mm. it, which almost it interests me as well in the sense that they don't seem to believe that they can become addicted. They also don't seem to worry about the potential health risks involved in cocaine. They see it almost as a safe party drug, which raises two questions. One, how safe is cocaine really? And then secondly, 
how dangerous might it be because it's been cut with other things by the dealers so you don't really know what might be in there with the cocaine? Well, exactly. And I mean, I suppose the big fear for the future is fentanyl. And when is that coming? Because it is coming. Um, Europol have started to sort of worry about that in reports that they put out. We're always a little bit behind the states. And certainly there's evidence that some of the Mexican cartels are sort of dispensing you know, wholesalers to so your... Just explain what fentanyl is and how you relate that to cocaine. Well, fentanyl, of course, is the drug that has swept through American drug users. People often buy cocaine in the US and think they're just buying cocaine, but there's fentanyl cut into it. Highly addictive drug and is causing 100,000 deaths in the US. It's a big health crisis. Um, it's been pushed by the Mexicans. There's part of it is is brought in from China to create it. And of course, there's an element of the Chinese don't really care if their you know, product has gone on up to the US because of political relations. It all is, you know, there's, there's a way bigger picture than just buying your bag of Coke or something in a pub. There's this huge big sort of geopolitical problem in the background with it. Um, so Europe's a growth market, which is why they eyed up Europe in the early 90s and why... They have continued to, I mean, we've, we're really seeing, there's been many people mentioning a tsunami of cocaine. It, the demand uh, hasn't actually reached its potential yet. So cocaine in itself, for many people, may not necessarily be addictive, but if it's caught with fentanyl, the risks of addiction increase. The they? risks of death, because fentanyl is a big killer, because you don't know, I mean, it's you only need apparently a very, very tiny amount for even just painkiller reasons. But um I think that cocaine and alcohol mixes creates a different substance called cocoethanol. Um, and I was talking to a doctor about that. And actually that was, that's quite interesting because that used to be um, yeah, many, many decades, centuries back, given out to people as a kind of a tonic when they were feeling a little bit down. Uh, and probably the same sort of thinking is there for the takers of it, They it makes them feel better and, and you know we talk about life is quite stressful and people want something to sort of chill out a bit or to boost their mood or whatever um, and that mix seems to be something that's very addictive here in this country and of course we have quite a, a high rate of alcoholism as well anyway. Now if you, there's a lot of small scale dealers all around the country every county, every hamlet almost as well as village and town but tell us about the big figures who initially import and then start to distribute. Is it all the Kinnahans or is it that there are others like the Kinnahans, albeit perhaps not on the same scale at it as well? Well, they're certainly in the top tier and there is a finite amount of people in that top tier, most of whom I think are probably in Dubai with them. Um, they're the biggest wholesalers. So they're sort of shipping it now and, um, you know, you're seeing tonnages shipped across. So they're financing that and then it, it sort of is, is sold on to other big groupings and onwards down the chain until you, you find a small dealer in a small town. It keeps coming to, and each time, of course, they want to make the maximum money. So each time it can be cut. It was interesting when I was researching for the book and really it started arriving in here in the early 1990s. Um, we were coming out of a heroin, second heroin epidemic at that stage. Heroin had a very bad reputation. Um, there was a very big shame attached to it, to taking it, to even dealing it. You know, I often yeah. even still hear the dealers looking down their nose on the heroin dealers. You know, it's okay to do cocaine, but... Um, 
And I suppose it came in and it looked clean and it looked, you know, it didn't, it didn't have that shame attached to it. And it, it just grew from there. Those early dealers, the ones who started off, a lot of them tended to be gamblers and blaggers and these types that would have turned their hand to anything. Um, but very quickly in the very early 1990s, it started to turn very dark. The dealers that were involved in it, um, young guys who probably were looking up to the likes of Martin Cahill and, and those and wanting a slice of the action. Um, so much money to be made. They will often, the gangs will, you know, will come together. They're very fluid. You know, you talk about gangs, but they could be working with different gangs on different days of the week. But they often then implode themselves, creating feud situations, as we're seeing in Finglas and other places like that. And the very young guys who are, and mostly guys who are involved in it, um, they're coming from, I mean, they're being radicalised, they're calling it now, not just groomed. They're being radicalised into these gangs and they're, you know, they're 15, 16, 17 and they're, they're pulling in 100,000 a month. That much? Yeah. But then can the Criminal Assets Bureau not go after them if the sums of money, well, what are they doing with the money? The Criminal Assets Bureau can go after assets. Um, they spend it, a lot of it. You know, they're spending a lot of it on high-end watches, you know, cars, they don't really care. They don't have fixed assets, probably the same way as the older dealers had. And the longer the Assets Bureau is in existence, the more people will put their money offshore. You know, they'll maybe buy a property out in Spain and be living in a council house here. That's actually quite common. They will spend 600,000 doing up the inside of a house that might be worth 190, 200,000. And that's how they spend it. They're also consuming their own product, aren't they? And there's been a lot of cases of the gangland hits, as they're described, murders, Mm. where it seems that those who do it get coked before they actually go and kill somebody. Yeah, well, they would be given it to give them confidence and whatever. But I don't know, like, I think that, you know, most people take cocaine will never probably get violent. But the the young guys that have been drawn into the gangs are being radicalised, are being made violent from a very young age. They're being given guns, they're being given firearms, they've been turned into killers before they're 20. There's a story early in the book that you tell about a 15-year-old in Galway yeah. who was effectively a drug dealer who was caught in possession by Gardy with what, about €45,000 worth of cocaine. Tell us about that. Schoolboy. And he was just picking it up from the, um, you know, a yard that it was hidden in. It was for his local community. And I really just picked it because I thought that it was extraordinary how unextraordinary that was. There was a time when a young kid like that caught with that amount of cocaine might have made national headlines. This was really just another day in court. And there was one teenager who did make national headlines, Keel Munreedy Woods, mm. which was one of the most shocking murders I think that's taken place in this country in recent years. And to consider the way that a 17-year-old was treated in death without going into the details too much of it. Is that, again, the type of thing that happens as a result of cocaine rows going wrong? That was completely fueled by cocaine, that feud in Drogheda, which actually almost toppled the balance. You know, when, when you look at that feud that happened, there was an issue that there were not. We didn't have police to police the town. And the drug gangs nearly took over that town of Drogheda. And it actually took... Uh, Keen Mulready Woods' death really for, for the kind of the national picture to come in there, for the Taoiseach to go and for the resources to be given to that town. But there was a time that they just did not have enough Gardaí to deal with the amount of incidents, this tit-for-tat feuding that was going on. People were absolutely terrified. 
can the Gardaí ever get control of what's going on? Or do we have to consider as part of what's also the recent forum that took place in relation to the future of our attitudes towards the legalisation or decriminalisation of drug use, do we have to consider the possibility that to get a handle on it, we need to treat cocaine like the way alcohol is treated, that it needs to be sold in a regulated way so that at least we know it's not going to be caught with fentanyl, that it's not going to be caught with rat poison and other things that, yes, there will be dangers, but that there can be a way of trying to control the danger of its use. I don't really know if that would work, to be honest with you, because I think we're probably not far from them creating a synthetic cocaine anyway, which would probably come in, be cheaper, stronger, you know, more readily available. The criminals are never going to walk away from this market, no matter what we do. And you also have the problem of if we legalise cocaine, where are we going to buy it from? The cartels in Colombia who are, you know, killing and murdering and mistreating people all the way along. So it's not as easy really as suggesting that we could legalise it and you could walk in off the street and have it tested and all the rest of it. There's a massive big problem with this. Then what do we do? Do we appeal to people's good conscience as in to say, don't buy this stuff because you're effectively funding killers and thugs? But there seems to be this massive disconnect, do you not think, with it? It's like, people know that. You know, I, they don't I, care, I, think they, I think that they they just disconnect. I think they just have this feeling, and maybe it's human nature. Which is just me. It's one bag. I mean, it's just. I mean, look, seventy euro. It's you know, is my weekend supply. So, I mean, what difference is that going to make? It's a drop in an, in the ocean in this multi billion euro industry, and that's it. And maybe sometimes as well, some of the misery and you know the violence and the corruption is too far away from people. I think a lot of the problem with cocaine is, especially with the middle class users, they. Feel finish their weekends partying, they go home to their nice suburbs and they don't have to look out the door at the problems that it causes because they're not living in these communities that are, you know, really affected by drugs where you have kids out at night. I mean, some of it is terrifying. Um, you know, if you if you saw the um, the documentary, the recent documentary in the guards, like when you actually see what they're facing in some housing estates and some communities in this country, it's it's shocking. And I wouldn't like to be bringing kids up in them. The book is Cocaine Cowboys, The Deadly Rise of Ireland's Drug Lords. Nicola Talent, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today and-